on today's podcast. I'm joined by MILB.com writer and Purple Dinosaur podcast co-host, Tyler Mond. We'll talk about the Rockies' 2016 hopes, their long-term plans, and their similarities with the Padres. This is the March 2nd, 2016 Gwintelligence Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Gwintelligence Podcast. I am David Marber of Change the Padres, and I am not joined by Padres Jagoff today. He is running a race in Costa Rica or Mexico, somewhere weird. Uh, so I'm doing something different. Um, I wanted to do this last year, but the Padres added so many players during spring training. We had so many emergency podcasts. We didn't get around to it. Uh, it's a tour of the NL West, and I'm going to be starting with the Colorado Rockies, and I am joined by uh, ML, uh, MILB writer and current host of the Purple Dinosaur podcast. That is the Colorado Rockies podcast affiliated with the SB Nation affiliate blog of the Rockies, purplerow.com. He is Tyler Mon. Tyler, welcome to the Intelligence podcast. Thank you, David. It's good to be with you. Yeah, how are things in, uh, in Denver? They're good. It's uh, it's warm. It's sunny. It's uh, it feels like baseball season, which means we'll undoubtedly get like a foot of snow by the end of the month. I'm sure, but uh, things are good right now. Awesome. Yeah, we have a uh, some surprisingly decent weather here on the East Coast right now. It was about 50 degrees today, so that was nice. Uh, why don't we jump right into this? Um, I want to kind of recap the Rockies' off season in the most Padres way possible, which is the three moves I know of pretty much, <laughs> uh, and then I just hope you can give me. Maybe a little bit more detail about what you think the Rockies' plan is short-term and long-term, and, and we'll, we'll go from there. Um, I think the main moves that Padres fans are probably aware of that happened this offseason were the Rockies signed uh, Gerardo Parra, and then they subsequently shipped Corey Dickerson, who became expendable for Jake McGee, uh, relief pitcher from the Royals. Um, interesting pair of moves there. They also have a, a, a ton of youth coming up through the system, in particular some arms they got back in the Troy Tulowitzki trade. How do Rocky fans perceive this offseason? That's a good question. Um, I think there are kind of varying degrees of Rockies fans. I think the, the average mainstream Rockies fan is frustrated because they don't see the long-term things and how you try to build a team from the inside out, especially as it you know pertains to a market like Colorado. Um, that, that seems to be the, the prevalent feeling among most observers of the organization as well. They didn't make any moves and they were terrible last year. So they're going to be even worse this year. Um, I think the, the people who really follow the organization who kind of understand prospects and how you have to build it. If you are an organization like the Rockies, I don't think anybody's really blown away by what the Rockies have done, but none of the moves they've made over this offseason have really uh, done anything to take away from what seems to be the plan for the next few years. I think the, uh, you know, the par assigning was probably the most confusing thing because at that time you're adding a left-handed outfielder to a roster that already had three starting left left-handed hitting outfielders. And you didn't really know who the odd man out was going to be from, uh, from that situation. And it ended up being Corey Dickerson. Um, we love Corey Dickerson around here. He was our pick as being kind of the Rockies breakout guy two years ago going into the 2014 season and he was uh, I think it's a very good move 
for Dickerson that he's in the American League now because he was a pretty well below average defender uh, in the outfield. And so I think the Tampa Bay Rays are going to be very happy with Corey Dickerson as a, a guy that they can, you know, platoon if they need to defensively and really have an option to slide into the DH spot or, or bring off the bench. Um, but from the Rockies side of it, the the main portion of the offseason has been spent, I think, I would imagine, on the inside circles uh, at Coors Field, trying to evaluate just how quickly they can get all of this impact pitching that's in the minor leagues right now to the major leagues. And that's really what the focus is going to be for the next couple of years. Yeah, and I'm, I had the fan graphs, you know, projected zips for 2016 in front of me. And this is something that's kind of a recurring thing we talk about here on a podcast I've kind of been prepping Padres fans for fifth place this fifth place this year because I actually think the Rockies have a surprisingly decent amount of almost major league ready prospects. Now I'm not sure how many of those are going to be, you know, potential Andrew McCutcheons or, you know, franchise changers. But if you look at just the high minors in particular, you have Trevor Story, who obviously made Tulowitzki movable. Um, I see a guy, uh, Tapia, I think he's, you know, has an opportunity to potentially contribute. And then you start looking at the pitching staff. Um, you have, uh, Bettis, Gray, um, and then I think Hoffman, who you got in the, uh, Blue Jays deal. And all these guys are projected to, you know, contribute one plus war in 2016. Now, I don't know if they're all going to get the playing time to do that. Um, but, you know, you juxtapose that to what the Padres are doing. And I think Padres fans are similarly frustrated. I, I think a lot of them don't see the long-term picture here as well. Um, and I think at least for the Rockies, you have something to build on in the short term. So, you know, with all that said, do you see the Rockies playing a lot of the young players this year? Or do you think there's going to be some sort of like arbitration clock, uh, arbitrage or, you know, how do you think the Rockies are going to play 2016? Are they pretending they're going to compete? That's kind of the million dollar question right now. I think uh, the the moves that they've made this offseason seem to suggest that they're under the delusion that they can be competitive for a postseason berth in 2016. I don't think that that's going to be the case. I do think that they're better than people are giving them credit for. I do think they're more of a middle-of-the-road team than they are a dead-last team than what we've seen from them over the last five years or so. Um, I don't think that they really can realistically – look at competing for the playoffs in 2016. But what they've done with the moves this offseason is they've created the option of if you find yourself in a circumstance in June and July where you are competitive, where you are competing to make it to the playoffs, then you have the luxury of a guy like Jake McGee, who it seems to be a very good shutdown option out of the bullpen, which is something they've really, really struggled to find. Uh, you still have Carlos Gonzalez on the roster who provides you, you know, that big marquee guy in the middle of the lineup. So I think that is the luxury that you have from some of these acquisitions is that if you find yourself in that circumstance, then maybe you try to ride it out in 2016 and figure out 2017 when it gets here. If not, and I think this should probably be the more pragmatic plan. I think you will see a lot of guys getting time and getting innings who are going to be a big piece of the puzzle going into 2017. And I think 2017 opens up a window of three to five years for the Rockies where they really have the potential to make some noise, um, whether that's, you know, finally winning a division title after 25 years or whatever it is uh, that, you know, you mentioned some of the guys. Trevor Story, I think right now you have to look at as being the odds on favor to be your opening day starter unless they want to keep him in the minor leagues for, you know, Super 2 uh, concerns or whatever it is. Um, Daniel Descalso is the veteran option there. They also have a kid named Christian Adamas who played pretty well last year in his, uh, his brief bird up at the major league level. Um, but, you know, in addition to him, Nolan Arenado is still very young. Uh, you've got guys coming up in the system right now who can play a, a 
kind of either side of the corner spots in the infield. A guy like Ryan McMahon is really, really talented, was at high A Modesto last year. Um, but I think the, the biggest prize from the position player side for the Rockies is David Dahl, who's a center fielder. Dahl eventually is going to make Charlie Blackman expendable. Uh, Blackman, I think, for the last couple of seasons has really played over and above what his ceiling ultimately is. So if they can find a way to sell high on him, it wouldn't surprise me to see David Dahl in the major leagues toward the end of this season. Uh, but I do think they're going to try to kind of throw some of these guys into the deep end and see if they can swim. John Gray obviously came up at the end of last season, was brilliant on the road, really, really struggled at home. Uh, but we'll see him. He'll be a mainstay this year. Jeff Hoffman, like you said, I mean, he was the most exciting piece of that Troy Tulowitzki trade. Uh, last year he came, actually, we do a, a podcast for MILB.com, and uh, he was on with us right after his first start back from Tommy John surgery. He had 99 miles an hour in that first start. That was for uh Class A advanced Dunedin in the Blue Jay system. And so he's really exciting. And then behind him, this is really what kind of we've termed the Breitich doctrine. The, the Jeff Breitich philosophy seems to be acquire as many impact arms as you can, throw them all at the wall and see who sticks. Because behind just John Gray and Jeff Hoffman, uh, Eddie Butler is still the guy who's very highly touted by a lot of people going into 2015, really fell off the map. It seems like he's rediscovered the stuff that made him one of the top prospects in baseball as he was coming up through the minors. Um, so he's an option. Chad Bettis, you mentioned, is still pretty young. He's been fantastic as a starting pitcher. They get a couple other young guys back from injury last year, Tyler Chatwood and Jordan Lyles. But even just as far as the prospects coming up, they drafted a kid uh, back in the first round, I think the ninth overall, or check that, the eighth overall pick in 2014. Hoffman was, weirdly enough, the ninth overall pick right behind him. But Kyle Freeland, who was a left-hander out of Evansville uh, back in 2014, actually grew up in Denver, went to high school in Denver. Last year, battled through some injury issues, but came back, was really good toward the end of the season, was fantastic in the Arizona Fall League. He's got a chance to really climb pretty quickly, I think, if he can stay healthy. Uh, they've got a kid named Antonio Sensatella, who is a really unheralded prospect when he signed out of Venezuela back in 2011. He's been phenomenal. Last season, finished in the Cal League with a 2.51 ERA, which nobody does in the California League. That was one of the lowest ERAs uh, over the last, I think, 15 years in the California League. So he's there. And then some of the other guys who they brought in in that Tulowitzki trade, Miguel Castro uh, is a, you know can touch triple digits, really factors well into the bullpen um, and got some experience at the Major League level last year. He's really exciting. Uh, they actually acquired an arm in that deal in Jesus Tinoco, who is by far the, the least heralded of the three. And when Tinoco moved over to the Rockies organization with Class A Asheville, 5-0 and in a 1.80 ERA, he was brilliant. And uh, in a park that's really not a pitcher-friendly park, he was outstanding. When the deal where they acquired Jake McGee, they acquired another good arm in Herman Marquez, um, who was a, a pretty highly touted raised prospect, kind of one of those mid-15 to 20s in a top 30 or so prospect ranking system. Uh, it just seems like that's been the aim, is to acquire as much young impact pitching as you can and eventually some of those guys are going to bear themselves out as being an impact type of arm at the major league level that's what we haven't seen from the Rockies in the past that's what the Dan O'Dowd era never brought the Rockies would get prospects in such limited doses as pitchers they would get a guy develop that guy get him to the major leagues ride him for a short span of time if you think about somebody like Jeff Francis or Ubaldo Menez and then cast him off elsewhere right now it seems to be the Rockies 
Rockies know they're going to be able to develop hitters. They know they're going to be able to develop position players. They need to be able to find enough guys who can throw the ball that eventually you're going to have two or three of them succeed enough at the major league level that you can really start to build around them. So I do think that's going to be a big piece this year. That's actually pretty interesting, the the whole depth with arm sling, because this has been a recurring topic on this podcast as well. You know, the Rockies are on the other end of the spectrum where, you know, it's pretty easy to produce hitters in Colorado or at the very least attract them. In San Diego, you have pretty much the opposite thing, right? You have a very right. large pitcher's park. Pitchers love to pit, uh, pitch there. You you can go back many, many years, and you can come up with guys who signed here on, you know, short-term deals below market value that uh, provided, you know, a, a couple wins to the Padres. And so for years, we've been clamoring for them to just draft position players, consistently draft position players, just stock the minor league system with position players. Uh, and recently they traded Craig Kimbrell. They brought back, you know, the two best guys in that trade were both position players. And I think it's something that the organization has figured out here as well. I do think, you know, just listening to the names you're rattling off. And of course, as a Padres fan, I'm familiar with maybe half of them. Uh, <laughs> but it sounds like the Rockies actually are reasonably positioned. Uh, to make some sort of run, you know, maybe twenty, maybe 2017 is too early, but maybe 2018, 2019. And, you know, that's the hope for Padres fans. And it's one of those things where you always have to look at the rest of the division, and I'm really glad we're doing this, to get a sense of, you know, where is your window going to be? Um, because, you know, obviously the window's not right now, right? The, the Dodgers clearly own the division, and the Giants are going to be just as good. And the, the Diamondbacks, you know, the projections aren't too favorable on them, but they made a bunch of high-impact moves. You know, so you start looking down the line, and if you're looking down the line of the Rockies, all of a sudden they're building a juggernaut. You know, maybe that shifts your window too. And I, and I, you know, really glad you're coming on the podcast here to talk about this because um, I think too many Padres fans, and I think fans in general, just assume that there's going to be a window there that are that's going to line up perfectly. And a lot of times that's not really the case. Um, but I want to go back to a, a, something you said earlier about Charlie Blackman and selling high on him because this is another topic we talk about all the time, especially with. Um, Andrew Kashner and Tyson Ross, two objectively of the most valuable Major League Padres right now in terms of trade value, um, whose arms might just fall off in 2016. And we've been saying for a while with Tyson Ross, you know, you should sell high on that guy. You traded nothing for him. He still is making uh, far less than you would make, you know, on a free agent deal or, you know, the replacement cost to go get him um, if you wanted a player of similar caliber than Tyson Ross. So they should trade him uh, in order to do that. Do you think the Rockies have, and, and sorry, to back to one more step, we don't think the Padres, you know, think that way. And I think one thing that really highlights that is the way they uh, jettisoned Jed Jerko this year. They, they traded him uh, for John Jay pretty much in a straight-up deal, uh, pretty much absorbed the remainder of Jed Jerko's contract and got a low upside player in return, um, pretty much dumping any chance of getting uh, a surplus in value should Jerko, you know, perform well in uh, St. Louis down the line because he was signed to a, a moderately market price deal um, at the time that he signed the extension. Uh, so, you know, we don't think the Padres operate that way. Do you think the Rockies operate that way? Do you think there's any chance they, for example, sell high on, on Blackman or do you think that's something that's, and, and not just Blackman, but you know, you know, that whole concept in general. That's a, a really good question too. And I think it somewhat remains to be seen because the Rockies had an opportunity to do that last year and didn't John Axford started off like he was the, you know, the reincarnation of Mariano Rivera last year and had an ERA, I think under one into the month of June, they held on to him. He imploded, uh, was just awful in July and into August and, you know, ends up walking away as a free agent. Um, and there's no way that you can know that a fall like that is coming obviously, but um, that was kind of the, first time 
that scenario presented itself. And Jeff Breidich did not jump on that. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that being said, we don't know what offers were there. We don't know what offers weren't there. Um, so maybe there was not a package that they felt like they could go after um, to let John Axford go and, and cash in on that. But I think this year will be very telling in that because the one thing that everybody talked about going into 2015 was – the Rockies cannot hang on to both Troy Tulowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez all season long. People thought when, you know, finally Dan O'Dowd and Bill Guyvet had stepped away that maybe this was going to be an immediate splash, that maybe Jeff Breidich was going to jump out and he was going to do something like what we saw from the Padres in 2014, where immediately it was going to be move after move after move to reshape the roster and his vision. That didn't really happen. But what did come out of that was we kind of got to know that Jeff Breidich is nothing if not patient. Uh, and I mean, Tulo and Cargo were both coming off of down years. Cargo's trade value had really never been lower after he was so racked with injuries and inconsistency in 2014. So they held on to both of them and they got themselves into a situation where, at least for the Tulo deal, I feel like they got a very, very good haul in return. Now, the Jose Reyes thing has turned into a nightmare, obviously, but what they got back from the Troy Tulowitzki trade was really a pretty good haul of impact pitching. So, I think to answer your point, they certainly seem to have shown that if they feel like the deals are there, they're not hesitant to make the deals. Uh, now, what we don't know is, do they hold out unrealistically? I mean, if somebody came to them with a, a package this offseason for Carlos Gonzalez and they said, no, that's no good, and it really was a pretty good deal in every evaluation outside of the organization, that's what we don't know about the Rockies just yet. Um I think that this year will be very telling in that because you have guys on the way who have a chance to make a big impact in places where really for all intents and purposes, you have expendable pieces. Carlos Gonzalez, I think becomes expendable. If Rymel Tapia continues to progress, you mentioned him earlier, one of the best and most dynamic bats in the minors. Uh, people are kind of up and down on what he can do defensively, but no matter what, even though he's unorthodox, he just continues to hit. I think he's a career 320 hitter in the minor leagues. Um, David Dahl more than makes Charlie Blackman expendable. If Dahl continues to progress, if he's a double A AA or triple A this year to start the season, I think by the middle or end of the season we could certainly see him at the major league level um so this year will really be telling a lot in that because where over the last few seasons the rockies have needed those guys to hold down spots you don't need those anymore because you do have this wealth of talent coming up um so i think carlos gonzalez is always going to be a topic of conversation for what the next big deal is for the rockies i think they think that they can keep in 2017 and beyond with him on the payroll. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case, but he's certainly one of those guys. Uh, Charlie Blackman is, Dave, is definitely one of those guys. People last year really talked about DJ LeMahieu, who was coming off of a, a gold glove season in 2014. Last year was his best offensive campaign. They do have some good talent uh, in the minor leagues at the lower levels of the minors that should be here in a few seasons. A kid named Forrest Wall is their top uh, second base prospect. He's a little ways off, but so that's somebody else. So I think this season is really going to be telling on that. But again, we look at it from outsiders and we kind of think, well, it seems like this would be a no brainer and we don't really know how it is. I mean, similarly to you guys with the Padres, we don't really know what the discussions are like on the inside. And especially from the Rocky standpoint for so long, they've been like the North Korea of major league baseball. I mean, nobody knows what goes on in that front office. And now it seems like we're getting a little bit more transparency with Jeff Breidich, but just having one year to evaluate him. I don't think we've really seen all the scenarios present themselves to see the way that he's going to react. 
So, so what would you consider a successful year for the Rockies in 2016? Because, I mean, abstractly, you know, if you don't win the World Series, it's not a true success. That's the way I look at it. I, I really enjoyed the 1998-1984 seasons, or I, I wasn't alive for 84, but 98 certainly, and all the highlights and, you know, videos I've watched from 84. But ultimately, that's not successful. But you have to look at it, you know, in terms of expectations. Uh, and so I, I've recently defined success for the Padres in 2016 as reasonable progress from Will Myers and Corey Spangenberg. Objectively, they're two best young uh, major league caliber uh, position players. And then some moderate growth in the minor leagues from some of their top prospects. That's what I would consider a, a success for the Padres in 2016, especially because they've had so much historical trouble developing players. Uh, you know, similarly for, for the Rockies, what, what would be a successful year for, for most Rockies fans? I think for the people who are kind of keeping this idea that 2017 and beyond are going to be the the start of a window of contention, you have to see reasonable success from John Gray, especially. I mean, John Gray really has to show that he's the guy that everybody believes he is, who can headline a rotation, who can be your frontline guy um, and can do that for a workhorse type of load and doing it for an extended period of time at this level. Um, that has to be part number one. Number two, which is kind of an ancillary component to that, I think behind him, you have to see the graduation and some sustained success from guys like Jeff Hoffman and Kyle Freeland and some of these other guys. There's a prospect everybody forgets about named Tyler Anderson, who the Rockies took in the first round in 2011 out of the University of Oregon. He sat out all of last season at a stress fracture in his elbow. Um, seems like he's healthy and finally effective. Two years ago, he was the minor league ERA king. So he's somebody else who really factors in this mix. It can't just be John Gray, though. For 2016 to be a success, they they have to see him, and I think they have to see at least two other prospects really take steps forward to show that they can be quality major league arms. Because you already know what from the Rockies offensively. Um, and the, the thing that's been interesting is really, especially this offseason, the growing conversation around how the Coors Field hangover isn't just that it makes the Rockies better at home. It's that they actually, it makes the Rockies worse on the road. So if I'm evaluating from an offensive standpoint, I think you need to find a way to mitigate that. The Rockies are the best team in baseball offensively when they're at home. They're the worst team in baseball offensively when they're on the road. Throughout franchise history, that's been the case. And the amount of runs that they've scored on the road has been thousands of runs fewer than everybody else over that same span of time. You have to find a way to be a middle-of-the-road offense when you're away from Coors Field and still hold that stake as being the best offensive baseball at Coors Field. I don't think that that is necessarily on the docket this year, but I think they have to show some sort of progress toward that, that it's not just going to be this feast or famine way that it's been for the last two decades. They've got to figure out a way to make something out of those road trips that at least you know approaches competence from an offensive standpoint. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, is there anything off the field that Rockies fans are really looking forward to this year or uh, are hoping to see, you know, move forward? I know, you know, for the Padres, for example, we love to see the brown uniforms used more often. Uh, and they're using them every Friday now, but that's still not the same as, you know, going back to brown permanently. <laughs> you know, the Padres brought in the All-Star game, which was a huge uh, crux because when we got Petco Park, it was under the assumption, or at least partial yeah. assumption, that would attract the All-Star game. And you know, 12 years later, here it comes. So that's nice. Uh, is there anything like that that uh, really, you know, puts Rockies fans on tilt? 
You know, what's kind of funny is uh, ever since we started this podcast and we started it before 2014, um, we've kind of finally cracked into this realm of Rocky's Twitter, quote unquote, which is sort of how we refer to it. But the way me and Anthony, my co-host, uh, the way we sort of described it going into the creation of the podcast was there is a very intelligent baseball community in Denver. It is very criminally underserved by the Denver sports media, which is all Broncos and nothing else. People in Denver yeah. uh, on the we media level. Yeah, absolutely. It's very similar, very similar Denver and San Diego. And the, the thing that's frustrating is nobody in the Denver sports media community really knows how to actually talk baseball. They can talk baseball on a very, very, skin level. That's about it. I mean, it's batting average and RBIs and what are they going to trade cargo and whatever it is, but there's nobody who dives into why are the Rockies the way that they are? Why is it that Coors Field is the biggest offensive advantage in baseball and also the biggest hindrance when the Rockies go on the road? What are these prospects like? Who are these guys and where do they go from here? Nobody talks about it that way. And so we kind of started to try to find that group. And I feel like over the last two years we have, and the funny thing is, I mean, you know, when the Rockies turn take a turn toward being terrible around May 1st every year, then we start getting those conversations about what, what else would be fun about this team. And I think the organization has started to listen to that. Um, they are definitely not uh, moving, I think, as quickly as the rest of us would like. But it seems like there is more of a willingness to do kind of some open and fun promotions where, you know, I mean, we've talked about at length uh, and seem to always have a conversation that involves the Rockies being tagged on Twitter about why they don't do throwback stuff to honor the Denver baseball history that came before. Denver had minor league baseball teams for over 100 years before the Rockies came in 93. So why not honor any of those teams? If you're not going to do that, why not do a back like the Rays do? Um, we've been very... At least I have. I think Anthony is on the in the same boat, but maybe not quite as gung ho about it as I am. I think the Rockies need a total refresh uh, from logo to uniforms to. I, I think you keep the color scheme the same because at least purple's unique now, um, with the Diamondbacks having moved away from it. But I think that would be they would be tremendously well served to do something like that. Um, they have started to do a lot of that stuff. And the thing that's neat is they're starting to make Coors Field into a destination beyond just the Rockies. They did some concerts there last year. Uh, the coolest thing they've done so far was the stadium series, the Avalanche and the Red Wings uh, just back on Sunday played or on Saturday uh, played at Coors Field. The week before that, it was Colorado College against the University of Denver, which is one of the biggest college hockey rivalries. So they are, I think, doing their best to in mesh Coors field in the fabric of the community as not just being, you know, a place where you go to watch a team lose 95 games a year, which is really cool. Um, so I don't know what it would necessarily be if you had to point to one thing this year. I mean, it probably would have been the stadium series last week. As far as baseball season goes, I'm not entirely sure, but the thing that's been neat is seeing how the Rockies have become more receptive to that they're very engaging on social media. They're one of the best social media, uh, best run social media operations in all of sports, not just major league baseball. Um, they're really funny. They keep things lighthearted. They weigh in on conversations. They sometimes will, you know, make fun of their Instagram followers because it's all 13 year old boys who have nothing better to do than comment first on a picture that they tweet out. So we'll screenshot it, tweet it out from our account, make a joke about it. The Rockies will favorite that. Like they're very, uh, they've started to become very socially aware of where they stand 
in the in the realm of this community, especially as it pertains to sports fans. Um, so that's neat. And that's what I'm probably most excited about is seeing kind of the, the continued evolution of that in this relationship that they've started to cultivate. And when it comes around that these guys make it to the major league level and this team starts to be successful again, that's when we're going to reap all the rewards from that. That's when I think it's going to be the most fun is seeing the way the city turns on to them again. Um, you know, I mean, 2007 and 2009, uh, 2007, I had just graduated from college and was unemployed all summer. I went to, you know, 40, 50 some Rockies games that year, went to every game from Todd Helton's walk off, off of Takashi Saito to, to all the way through the world series, every home game um, that I have never in my life been around a sports experience like what it was like here for September and October of that year. Um, and that includes, you know, I've been alive for three Broncos world world championships, something about having a team that's playing every day, the intensity of a postseason race, all of that is what makes it the greatest sport in the world to me. And I've never seen an energy the way they create it when they're that good. So that's what I think is neat now is they seem to be, laying the groundwork for a lot of exciting stuff over the next few seasons, whether it's off the field or on the field. And once that comes around on the field, they're really in a good position to capitalize on it. I think you pretty much just described the Padres too. Yeah. There are so uh, many similarities. There really are like new uniforms is a constant, you know, constant thorn in our side. And then the whole Petco park has also become a huge destination in downtown. And I lived in downtown San Diego for over a year and, you know, they, they had uh, the Rolling Stones kick off their tour there. They brought in Taylor Swift. They were even doing, like, monster truck rallies. I know they brought in some uh, Club Mexico teams to come play some uh, soccer games there. And I even think they had Manchester United ones. You know, they've really turned that into a, a destination. And on the plus side also, they renegotiated the deal with the city of San Diego, so they get to keep uh, more of the revenue there. Um, so it's actually become an, an, a nice little boost to the Padres uh, financially. Um, and then the whole social media thing. I, it sounds like the Rockies are a lot more uh, cognizant on social media and probably a little bit funnier than the Padres. But uh, prior to the new administration, what, what we used to have was a team that was very disengaged. I think you had some people in the front office that would be willing to reach out to uh, individuals and speak with individuals. But there was really no social media push, um, unless you want to count Paul D. Podesta's old blog back in like 2008. I don't count that. Um but, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of similarities between the two franchises right now, except perhaps with the Rockies being a little bit closer to, to actually competing. Well, and the thing is, inter- it's, it's, yeah. always, it's always interesting because, you know, a lot of people like to give the Padres so much credit for what they're doing right now. But it's really no different than what's happening even across the division. You know, yeah. and it's so funny because we're in our little boxes. And, you know, once you get to reach out and talk to other people, you realize this is something that most teams are actually doing. And what I think is so interesting, too, is if you had to at least, you know, leading into if you had to compare the Rockies to a team leading into 2015, you probably would have said they were most similar to the Diamondbacks, I guess, in the division. Um, But for so long, I've always said the same thing, that the Rockies and Padres have operated very, very similarly over the years. Um, I think the Padres, you know, obviously had a more successful stretch in the mid 2000s than the Rockies did. But there's always been a lot of similarities between these two organizations. And I think the thing that really stands out most to me is 
the differences in the polar opposite 2014 offseasons that they had. The Padres went out, made a ton of splashes, and it didn't work out. The Rockies went out, didn't make any splashes, knew it was going to be a rough 2015, and it was, but they've stayed on the same course, which is not something you could say for the Rockies over the you know, preceding 10, 15 years, especially under Dan O'Dowd when it was like they had a plan, and then the plan changed 15 minutes later every 15 minutes for a decade. That's what I really admire about the last you know 18 months or so with the Rockies is it seems like they finally have somebody in Jeff Breidich who has an idea of what he thinks can work here. If it works, then he's vindicated. If it doesn't, at least he's stuck to what he thought was going to be successful here and can make that his claim. Um, but yeah, for a long time, I've always kind of felt like the Rockies and Padres had way more similarities than, than people really realized. And the other thing I think is really fascinating to watch in the division is the way that the Rockies are positioning themselves for a window of competitiveness starting next year for three to five years where the other organizations in this division, especially the Diamondbacks, have really, really decimated the options that they have going forward. I mean, the Dodgers have a lot of really good pieces in their minor league system. The Giants really don't. The Giants system is pretty barren. Uh, the, the Padres have recovered a lot of talent. I mean, they shipped off a ton of talent at the end of 2014. They've rebuilt some of that coming into 2016. Uh, but the Diamondbacks... Right, exactly, and that'll help a ton. Um but, man, the Diamondbacks, if, the, if it doesn't happen for the Diamondbacks this year or next year, that's going to be a bad team for a long time because they have sent away so much talent from that organization. They have nothing. And they don't have – I mean, despite the huge TV deal, they don't have unlimited coffers. I mean, this isn't something where if Zach Greinke doesn't work out, they can go out and throw nine figures at whoever's on the market next offseason. They've really put themselves in a spot where they have to do it now or very, very soon. And that's where I think the Rockies are in a good position is when all these teams start coming back to earth the Rockies are going to be on the rise and that's what I think the aim is for them at this point is 2017 2018 2019 have all these guys coming to the major leagues at the same time and while they're doing that have all these other teams starting to fall off which is a lot to ask for but that seems to be part of the game for them few few quick questions uh this is just completely hypothetical if you could trade the entire Rockies uh, player organization, so you keep the front office, keep ownership, keep everything except the players for the entire Padres organization. Would you do it? Oh man, um, that just is, the fact that there's hesitation, yeah, to, to, is telling, right? Because you know, I, I think if it was the Dodgers or the Cubs, it would be an obvious yes. But. Yeah, I think um, you know, I I would probably say yes, but I think there's. It would almost be, you know, trading six of one for half dozen of the other. I don't think that the owner Rocky's ownership is so reviled here that I think if if you were in a situation where you could get that black stain off of um, what is otherwise a very proud um, part of this community, I think people would take that in a heartbeat. But I don't know if it instantly makes it a better organization or a better team, um, especially because this is not an area where it seems like it's ever worked out to go out and make the types of moves that the Padres did last year. And I don't think that the Padres are done doing that. I mean, I think if, you know, this offseason hasn't had a 
shown it. But it wouldn't surprise me to see maybe a miniature version of that over the next few years that the Padres see another window starting to open and think, well, let's add a couple of pieces and see what we can make happen. Um, and that has never really seemed to pan out here because it's so systemic in Colorado. They're never just a piece away. You have to grow these things and let them germinate to all make one giant impact at the same time because it's so hard to be successful here on the pitcher's mound. Um, so I don't know. I, that That is a really good question. I think, you know, probably from an ownership standpoint, you probably would if you're a Rockies fan just because of what the, the ownership group has become to people here. But that is a really, really good question. Um, are the Rockies using the term rebuild? No, they are not. And uh, Jeff Breidich has said multiple times he doesn't really see the point of it because no matter what he deems it, people are going to say what they're going to say about it and they're going to think what they're going to think about it anyway. Um, that's really frustrated uh, the, the Denver media around here, especially um, some of the beat writers in that the Rockies will never commit to that. There was a, a story the other day uh, from one of the writers for the, the newspaper here that um, Jeff Breidich would not pick out a specific day that he thinks things will start to turn around for the Rockies. And that was a headline that he ran with. Breidich will not say when things will start getting better for the Rockies. When in reality, Based on the quote that Breidish gave, it seemed like just about the dumbest or most asinine question that you could have asked, which is, well, can you give us a specific time frame of when things are going to try, going to start getting better? And what Jeff Breidish said was, what's the point of me saying that? Because if it happens, okay, then it happens. That's great for everybody. If it doesn't happen, then it's just going to be used to tie us to that stake of the Rockies are failures because it didn't turn around by the trade deadline of 2016. So that's what's interesting is Jeff Breidish doesn't really seem to care what the perception is outside. He has his plan and he wants to only stick to that plan, which I think is really frustrating to a lot of people. I find it to be pretty admirable that you can not get sucked into a circumstance for saying things for the sake of pleasing a beat writer for the sake of placating fans. Okay. I have a, I have a couple of quick one-off questions and uh, hall of fame voting. Uh, Larry Walker obviously hasn't picked up much steam in hall of fame voting uh, over the years, which is I think a little disappointing to me. Um, I know growing up the, you know, the park factor in Colorado was ridiculous when, when Larry Walker was playing, but I, I still think his numbers at least justified a much larger hall of fame vote. If, if not induction, um, and my question is, do you think that's going to affect Todd Helton's candidacy? Yeah, I do. Um, I also think what's really going to hamper Todd Helton is the era that he played in. I mean, Larry Walker certainly played through the PED era, but was never really tied to it. I mean, if you may, maybe remember, uh, former Rockies play-by-play guy, Wayne Hagen, once came out and said that Todd Helton had either thought about or had done PEDs in a radio interview, and that was a huge controversy here for a while. I don't think he did, but I do think that he'll be lumped into that group with the way his career really, really took a downturn. Um, you know, starting about 2008, 2009 or so, Todd Elton was just a shell of himself for the final few seasons of his career. Never really hit for much power. Um, still had the strike zone judgment, still was able to slap hits the way that he always could throughout his career. But I think people are really going to hold that against him in Coors Field. You basically have to be five times the player of anybody else in your generation to get consideration because it's not just, oh, the ballpark's a joke, it's a launching pad, it makes everybody look better than they are, but it's a media island. Nobody focuses on what happens in Colorado, and individual talents are playing on bad teams for the most part. Larry Walker's a Hall of Famer. If you look at Larry Walker's career splits from when he played in Coors Field, his numbers are better on the road in most categories. Larry Walker will always be a Hall of Famer to me, uh, and I think eventually – 
he'll find his way in. But I do think Todd Helton's going to be painted with a much harsher brush because of the fact that his numbers took such a nosedive. And I think the other thing with him is he didn't do the five tool stuff that Walker did. He wasn't, I mean, defensively was brilliant, but he was brilliant at a position that isn't quite as sexy to be brilliant as when you're an outfielder and you can throw guys out at first base who are trying to leg out singles, which I remember watching Larry Walker do at Coors Field when I was a kid. So I think Walker will make it. I think Helton's going to have a lot tougher road, which, you know, this time 10 years ago, you never would have said. Yeah, I know. Uh, you can go look at his numbers. 141 OPS plus in his career, which is a- an absolutely mind-boggling number because it's adjusted for a course field. It's adjusted for that era even. Uh, it's remarkable to me that he's gotten such a low fare, uh, you know, just such a low voting total. Uh, I was honestly stunned his first time on the ballot. I think he got, what, 11 votes or something? Yeah, something, something like that. Absolutely, yeah. Something absolutely mind-bogglingly low. Um, the thing that I think Walker has going for him is it seems like the, the advanced stats community has really started to rally around him. And, you know, for however many crotchety beat writers out there who are saying that, that sabermetrics and analytics are ruining the game, that is having a growing influence on the hall of fame vote. Tim Raines is going to get in next year. We know that. Um, I think eventually where Larry Walker is going to take up that mantle as this guy was the real deal. This guy was as good as good could be. And you have to start looking at this seriously because of X, Y, and Z. So I think eventually that'll be enough for him. I'm just, I'm just kind of bummed about it. And I I think for Todd Helton, uh, one thing that's going to stick out to most Padres fans or should, you know, related to the hall of fame is uh, Hoffman's candidacy because Todd Helton actually has the best numbers against Trevor Hoffman uh, as than any other player that's ever played baseball. And in Helton's career, he was, 13 for 25 against Trevor Hoffman uh, with a 1,316 OPS, which is uh, pretty incredible when you're talking about a potential Hall of Fame relief pitcher. Probably will be a Hall of Fame relief pitcher. Um, Yeah, that. So, anyways, I wanted to, to, to touch base with you on that. Is there anything you want to cover here? You know, I just think it's uh, this is going to be a really interesting season. And I for if I'm, you know, speaking to Padres fans, um, let's enjoy our fourth and fifth place. No, it's I think this year is really get your fill of the Dodgers, Diamondbacks, Giants thing now, because I don't think that that power structure is going to last very long. Eventually, I mean, I don't I don't see these moves working out for the Diamondbacks. I Paul Goldschmidt is a guy who really deserves a chance to be on a winner. I'm glad they've given that to him. I respect the hell out of him and love watching him as a player, but I don't feel like they made enough to push themselves over the top. And I think what they gave up is really going to hurt that organization coming up in the next few years. Uh, The Giants, you know, it's an even year, so they're probably going to win the World Series. But really, beyond what they have at the Major League level, there's so many question marks with that team. The Dodgers are going to be good for a while. We know that, but I don't think they're going to be dominant for a very long time. So where it looks like things are terrible, if you're a Rockies fan and a Padres fan, I think the light at the end of the tunnel is a lot closer than what it seems like or what it has seemed like over the last couple of seasons. So uh, don't give up hope. But uh, if you do, we'll we'll see you in the cellar in, like, August. We can all commiserate over, you know, 261 team. Teams colliding. I think I've said the same thing about the Giants for years. I, they haven't had a top farm system in a really long time, but when really they produce one player, that player is so that he ends up being a huge impact player. Yes. I mean, even when they brought up Lincecum, Posey, Boomgarner, they were all top prospects, but they didn't have much else in the farm system at the time. And at one point, they even traded Zach Wheeler for Carlos Beltron on a rental. And I remember right. thinking, oh, their their reign must be over. 
uh, and they just keep on ticking. So I'm going to hold my breath. I'm not going to hold my breath on that one, but uh, I will commiserate fourth, fifth place with you. I think that is a pretty much a certainty, um, unless maybe the Rockies' youth uh, has a push, or some Padres have bounce back years. Maybe James Shields has a has a huge year, and they can push back the, push past the Diamondbacks or something like that. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that's that's all the questions I got for today. I know we've gone on a little bit long here, but um, want to thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Hopefully, we can do this uh, next off season at the very uh, least. Uh, maybe even uh, some point during the season if something big comes up between the Rockies and the Padres. For that division title in September, we'll talk about it. Yeah, when, when they're uh, both taking <laughs> for the first pick, you know, we can discuss who, who's the worst team. Yeah. All right, thank you very much. And for those of you that want to read more of Tyler, you can uh, go to purplerow.com. That is the SB Nation affiliate uh, spot for the Colorado Rockies. He's also a writer on MLB.com or MILB.com, sorry. Um, and... Uh, do you have a Twitter handle? I do, yeah. I am at Tyler Maun. My last name is M-A-U-N. So, uh, yeah, I tweet, you know, it's a lot of uniform talk. If you like logos and uniforms, I'm, I'm one of those nerds. Do you talk Broncos? Because I cannot stand the Broncos. Uh, you know, sometimes. I limit it to Broncos season. I do talk. I went to the University of Nebraska, so I do, do, I do talk Husker football during the season, which annoys a lot of people, too. But I'm, I'm like 95% minor league baseball. So minor league baseball and, like, weird international baseball, which also fascinates me. I have no problem with Nebraska okay. football. They got nothing else to root for, man. Like, yeah, exactly. If it, if one thing, if it's Ohio State or, like, Florida or something, <laughs> they got other teams to root for. But Nebraska, come on, that's all they got. Yeah, and it's not like we're ever good anymore. So, you know, it works out all the time. Yeah. Is Mike Riley there now? He is. Yes. This is year two coming oh, up. Oh, man. Mike Riley. An illustrious six and seven a, season. First time through, so, uh, and a, an illustrious one and 15 in San Diego as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is another connection. Yeah. It'll be, uh, yeah, it'll be an interesting year. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you once again. And uh, until next time, Potters fans, go Potters. <laughs>